All right. Our second reading is Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 45. I'm reading from the message paraphrase. This is also in your bulletin. Hear the word of the Lord. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to the Galilean village of Nazareth to a virgin engaged to be married to a man descended from David. His name was Joseph and the virgin's name, Mary. Upon entering, Gabriel greeted her. Good morning. You're beautiful with God's beauty. Beautiful inside and out. God be with you. She was thoroughly shaken, wondering what was behind a greeting like that. But the angel assured her, Mary, you have nothing to fear. God has a surprise for you. You will become pregnant and give birth to a son and call his name Jesus. He will be great, be called son of the highest. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will rule Jacob's house forever no end ever to his kingdom. Mary said to the angel, But how? I've never slept with a man. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the highest hover over you. Therefore, the child you bring to birth will be called Holy Son of God. And did you know that your cousin Elizabeth conceived a son old as she is? Everyone called her barren, and here she is six months pregnant. Nothing, you see, is impossible with God. And Mary said, yes, I see it all now. I'm the Lord's maid, ready to serve. Let it be with me just as you say. Then the angel left her. Mary didn't waste a minute. She got up and traveled to a town in Judah in the hill country, straight to Zechariah's house and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby in her womb leaped. She was filled with the Holy Spirit and sang out exuberantly, You're so blessed among women, and the babe in your womb also blessed. And why am I so blessed that the mother of my Lord visits me? The moment the sound of your greeting entered my ears, the babe in my womb skipped like a lamb for cheer joy. Blessed woman who believed what God said, believed every word would come true. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, by your Holy Spirit, please open our ears to hear your word. Open our minds to understand your word. Open our hearts to receive your word. And bless our hands and feet to do your word. In Jesus' name, amen. It's only about 27 days until Christmas. Can you believe it? Today is the first Sunday of Advent, something we will be observing for the next three Sundays as well. So what is this Advent thing? I mean, the word adventure starts with Advent, so maybe there's a clue. Not a bad clue either. I'll come back to this. Advent is derived from the Latin word for coming, as in, Daddy left for work this morning, but he's coming home later. Or, I can't wait for next week because our daughter is coming home from college. It's the idea of arrival containing a dash of eager anticipation. Advent heralds the coming or arrival of something or someone significant. Specifically, within the context of Christianity, it points to both the birth of Christ 
and especially his second coming. As an event on the liturgical calendar, just like Christmas, it's entirely man-made. There's nothing in Scripture that declares Christmas as a holiday for Christians to observe. And Advent didn't exist until someone possibly around the 5th century thought it up. Now, I didn't grow up celebrating Advent, but I heard things like it's a vain tradition of those spiritually dead liturgical churches. At least, that was the fake news version and an opinion I don't necessarily adhere to. But I have to admit, there was something intriguing about Advent calendars that dispensed candy. I kind of wanted in on that. But in our family and small church, November was all about Thanksgiving and December was all about Christmas. In church, we began singing Christmas hymns and carols the first Sunday after Thanksgiving and every Sunday through December and even into the new year. Just as general Christmas traditions vary among churches and families, not everyone celebrates Advent the same way either. As far as I could tell, there's no consensus as to the order of themes and even to the colors of candles. While we celebrate hope, peace, joy, love, and light a purple candle, others celebrate peace, love, joy, and hope. And the first candle they light is green. Somebody gasped, I heard it. Church liturgical traditions can be useful as long as we are not slaves to a specific correct formula for observing them. That would smack of legalism, which can lead to all sorts of mayhem. For example, some believe no Christmas song should be sung until December 25th because they say Advent anticipates the birth of Christ, so we shouldn't be singing about his birth until it's happened. To that idea, I say, as you can probably imagine, bah humbug. First, Jesus actually has been born. And second, we've only got four or so Sundays to squeeze in the dozens of wonderful Christmas songs and hymns. So let's have at it. I say banish the non-Christmas songs until at least January 6th, Epiphany, when Christmas is officially done. And that's the day you're supposed to take down your Christmas tree. But this is just my opinion, and I digress. While Advent is a period of anticipating the coming of Christ, the focus isn't solely on his birth. Rather, it's a time to anticipate both his first arrival and his second coming, or rather, the time in between, the now and the not yet, the time in which we live and move and have our being pre-heaven. As I said earlier, Adventure is a good clue as to what Advent is really all about. The faith journey we are on right now truly is an adventure as we eagerly anticipate the return of our king. So what are we to make it? What are we to make of Advent? Perhaps we need to look at it as a time to focus our thoughts and hearts beyond just Emmanuel, God with us, and add in a dash of Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Now in the first chapter of Luke, we read two significant stories of anticipation of Advent. The first story involves a priest and his wife, Zachariah and Elizabeth. In a nutshell, the story goes like this. 
Zechariah is doing his priest thing in the temple when the angel Gabriel appears and startles him. A reasonable reaction to an angel showing up. Gabriel tells Zechariah that he and Elizabeth are going to have a baby. Now, the kicker here is that they are very old. We don't know exactly how old, but obviously beyond the normal childbearing years. They had no children. And at that time, this was viewed as not a good thing. To be barren raised questions about a couple. It was hard. So being told by an angel that you were finally going to have a child and a boy, no less, was cause for celebration. But it gets better. The child would be a precursor and cousin to Jesus. He would be John the Baptist, the voice in the wilderness pointing to the Messiah. So how does Zechariah respond? Well, instead of startled, he's now skeptical and asks Gabriel, how can this be? I'm old. My wife's old. She's barren. Are you serious? Okay, that's my paraphrase, but it gets to the mood of the moment. Some commentators say he's actually asking for a sign to be convinced. Now think about this. Zechariah is a priest. He is well-versed in the history of Israel. And he knows all about the mighty deeds that God has done. And he's completely aware that he is in the presence of one of the Lord's angels. And yet, he's skeptical. As a result, he loses his voice and possibly even his hearing. During the pregnancy. Now we move to the second Advent story. One you're probably more familiar with since it's about the Virgin Mary, the soon-to-be mother of Jesus. She was engaged to Joseph, who was a descendant of David. Typically in those days, engagements lasted about a year. And before the wedding, they were considered all but married, except they were chaste. Gabriel shows up again with a similar message as before. God has chosen the young virgin Mary to give birth to his son. Mary's response is a little different than Zechariah's. Mary asked Gabriel, how is this supposed to happen? I'm not married yet, and so Joseph and I haven't, you know, gotten together, so to speak. Gabe says, no sweat. This is going to be handled by the Holy Spirit. He also fills her in on what's happening with Elizabeth and concludes, nothing is impossible with God. To this, Mary responds in all humility, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be with me just as you have said. I want to point out a couple of things here. First, a very old and barren couple are having child, and now... A very young virgin is going to have a child. Quite the contrast. It really underscores that all of creation is fully within the grasp of the Lord and that in him all things hold together. We are the creation of God and he's got this, all of this. Second, like Zechariah, Mary is fully familiar with the history of Israel. She knows who God is and what he can do. But unlike Zechariah, she truly, fully, unhesitatingly believes in the power and authority of God. The difference between the two questions, the, the difference between the two questions they ask is that Zechariah's was a tad dubious, while Mary is simply curious. 
Now Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. Some say Elizabeth is Mary's aunt. Others say they are cousins. But either way, they are relatives. When Mary enters the room in utero, baby John gives Elizabeth a kick. And she's filled with the Holy Spirit and proclaims in a loud voice, by the way, kind of like when Oprah's giving stuff away. Mary, you are blessed. The baby is blessed. I'm blessed. We're all blessed. I'm so happy. Again, I'm paraphrasing. What Mary does next, though, is what I really want us to focus on today. She lets loose with what's referred to as the Magnificat. It's a magnificent canticle, a prayer, a poem, a song. All of praise to God. Now listen to it as I read from the Common English Version. This is also included in your bulletin. Mary said, With all my heart, I glorify the Lord. In the depths of who I am, I rejoice in God my Savior. He has looked with favor on the low status of his servant. Look, from now on, everyone will consider me highly favored because the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. He shows mercy to everyone from one generation to the next who honors him. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered those with arrogant thoughts and proud inclinations. He has pulled the powerful down from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty-handed. He has come to the aid of his servant Israel, remembering his mercy, just as he promised to our ancestors, to Abraham, to Abraham's descendants, Forever. In fewer than 150 words, Mary declares the glory of God, the favor of God, the mercy of God, the strength of God, the justice of God, the provision of God, and the faithfulness of God. The prayer reveals that this teenager, some say she was around 15 or so, is saturated in God's word, a trait we should all emulate. John Piper writes, Mary is so steeped in scripture that when she breaks out in praise, the words that come naturally to her lips are the words of scripture. Being a young woman, she probably loved the stories of the Old Testament women of faith, like Sarah, Deborah, Hannah, Ruth, and Abigail. Nearly every commentary will link Mary's Magnificat to the prayer of Hannah in 2 Samuel, who like Elizabeth, desired to have a child. There are also hints of Isaiah, and there's a prophetic element as well. You can hear a pre-echo of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. It's an outline of sorts for the ministry of Jesus as he breaks his kingdom into the world. Now, given that we are called to model our lives and ministries after Christ, This prayer of Mary can serve as a model for us. How we view God, how we view ourselves in Christ, how we should view the world, and how we should serve the world. So let's break it down. As did Mary, we must extol the glory of God, pledging our allegiance 
only to him, as he is the only true authority worth serving. He is our creator. He is our sustainer. He is above all other gods, all other rulers, all other powers, period. We can rejoice in the favor of God that he has shown us. As blood-bought believers, we are the recipients of immense mercy and grace. And we must pass this grace and mercy on to others. We can rest in the strength of God, knowing that he is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. And we can teach others to trust in his strength. We can count on the justice of God, knowing he will provide our daily bread for our physical needs, as well as satisfy our soul's thirst. And we must pass on this provision to others by meeting physical needs and ministering to hurting and lost souls. And finally, we can have hope in the faithfulness of God who fulfills his promises, knowing that his word is true and that he who started a good work in you will stay with you to complete the job by the day of Christ Jesus. And we must shine the light of the gospel into the world and, as did Mary, proclaim the message of the hope we have in the faithfulness of God. Throughout this first week of Advent, as we look with anticipation for the coming of the Lord, I encourage and challenge you to open your Bibles daily to Mary's song in Luke 1 and make it your prayer, your personal magnificat, To the Lord and let the words sink into your heart and mind, transforming you more and more into his likeness. Meditate on the themes of God's glory, God's favor, God's mercy, God's strength, God's justice, God's provision, God's faithfulness. These are the elements that fuel our faith in Christ. And it is only in and through Christ that we have hope, a magnificent hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the mission you have called us to here in Huntington Valley. Give us wisdom and courage as we seek to share the hope we have in you with the community around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.